This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Some people call me a terrorist. I consider myself a teacher. America. Ready for another lesson? Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I am your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined by my host, Gabe Green, who also sounds probably a lot better than I do right now. I'm going to apologize on the outset. Uh, my mic that I usually use is missing a cable. We're, uh, we're going through a move right now, and its location eludes me. So hopefully I won't be sounding like this for too long. I'm going to try to get this replaced pretty quick. We forgive you of your irresponsibility, James. No, I appreciate that. So when's the move? Uh, it is going to be here in a couple of weeks. We're actually paying for both places at the same time. So it's kind of like a, a month long transition from one apartment into a house we're renting. Nice. All right. So uh, this week uh, we are still going through the MCU. We just... Uh... I forget, was Iron Man 3 the beginning of Phase 2, or was it, were they doing the thing where the movie afterwards was also still fa- the same phase? Was, this was the beginning of okay. Phase 2. Well, we're in Phase 2, and we're talking about Iron Man 3. Uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, and also subscribe. Uh, that would just be very helpful, and we would really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, you can find us there at Franchise Take Podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest episodes and uh, leave us feedback that can be read on the show. And speaking of that feedback, a lot of people wanted to talk about Iron Man 3. Like, <laughs> like nobody wanted to talk about the Avengers, but apparently Iron Man 3 gets some talking. So on Facebook, uh, Shane, uh, old reliable, said, more of a Shane Black movie than an MCU movie, and it's better for it. Why Kingsley didn't get a uh, supporting actor nomination is anybody's guess. He's brilliant. I fully endorse all of that. Yes, indeed. Uh, Samuel said, better than Iron Man 2, not as good as Iron Man 1. It had good intentions in trying to humanize Tony's character more and explore his personal struggles, but a lot of what the of, a lot of the plot turned out predictable and generic, and the one time they broke formula with the Mandarin reveal was actually pretty anticlimactic. Joshua said, the best kind of Marvel comedy in my opinion. Drew said, I love and hate it. I wasn't a fan of how much comedy was in it, and the way they handled the Mandarin was disappointing, but I was still ridiculously entertained. Zach said, two out of five stars, and that's actually my pastor, so I'm glad his uh, preaching is better than his movie opinions. (laughs) Uh, uh, Jessica said, it's the worst Iron Man. Ouch. (laughs) These three are fun. uh, So you have Jessica say it's the worst Iron Man. MJ Smith from the Real Perspective podcast said, it's the best Iron Man. And then Becky said, it's the middlest Iron Man. So... Uh, continue it, but from what Becky said, she says, and it's underrated. It's a lot better than people give it credit for. Tony's PTSD and identity issues, the Manders commentary, the reveal, Rhodey, etc. Byron said, it's a very well-made film, and it has some of the strongest action in the MCU. That being said, they should have either committed to the Mandarin or to Killian. The bait and switch, while being a good twist, cost us the development of Killian as a great villain. That's going to be an interesting, interesting discussion because I have a lot of thoughts on the whole villain thing with this movie. Josh Berkey from the Victims and Villains podcast, which we uh, just guested on a few weeks back, uh, said massively underrated. Yes. I think a podcast called Underrated talked about this once. Oh, maybe. Uh, Eric said, my favorite Iron Man film, one of Marvel's best, in my opinion. Uh, Jesse said, 
I didn't have an expectation for the Mandarin, but apparently if you're a comic nerd, <laughs> what was done in three was a big no-no. Not a comic nerd, though, so I enjoyed the movie just fine. Liked it, still think one is better, but it's certainly better than two. Uh, and David said, it's grown from my least favorite uh, MCU film to top 10. Love it so much. And finally, on Twitter, 31NN3R211 at Lost Souls211 said, I like this movie. That's it. Well, there you go. All right. <laughs> that was a lot. So moving into the behind the scenes story of this film, um, something I forgot to mention la last week was that Disney purchased the distribution rights uh, to the MCU characters from Paramount in 2010. Um, so Paramount still uh, distributed all the solo phase phase one films uh, with the exception of the Incredible, the Incredible Hulk, which is, of course, uh, owned and still owned by Universal. However, starting in 2012 with The Avengers, Disney would distribute all the MCU films going forward up until Homecoming. And following the purchase of the rights, Disney announced the development of Iron Man 3 in October of 2010, with the planned May of 2013 release date. Later that year, John Favreau would confirm that he was not going to direct. Um, however, he did stay on as an executive producer and, of course, an actor. In 2011, Shane Black, uh, the celebrated writer of such films as Lethal Weapon, the Long Kiss Goodnight, and uh, the writer-director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was hired to write and direct the film. Uh, I'm sure uh, Robert Downey Jr. had a big part in uh, getting him hired. Um, back uh, when uh, Robert Downey Jr. was kind of trying to get back into the industry, one of his big starring roles was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and supposedly that was one of the, the uh, roles that uh, Favreau used to convince the Marvel execs that uh, they could hire him. And, you know, we already talked about how Black actually kind of like gave advice on the scripts before for the Iron Man films. Yeah. And so uh, British writer Drew Pierce, uh, who had been hired in 2010 to write uh, the film adaptation of Brian K. Vaughn's The Runaway comic before that comic, uh, that project fell through, was then reassigned uh, to partner with uh, Black in writing Iron Man 3. They decided to keep it grounded like the previous two Iron Man films. Uh, it wanted to do more of like a Tom Clancy political thriller than like a giant fantasy film. Um, they borrowed some elements as well as the name from Warren Ellis' extremist storyline, uh, but it's definitely not an adaptation of that run. As far as the choice to use the Mandarin as the villain, Black said he wanted to update the character to re reflect modern fears. He said that the Mandarin was originally conceived uh, as rep representation of the West's fear of Chinese communism, which would have been in the 60s. Uh, so he updated that notion to represent the modern fear of terrorism. Uh, the character of Maya Hansen was originally conceived to be the primary villain, uh, but they had to change it to Killian uh, because apparently the, some of the uh, merchandising executives uh, were worried that uh, a female villain wouldn't sell toys. Like, nobody's like, is anybody buying Aldrich Killian, uh, you know, dolls and action figures? That's anyway? exactly what I was thinking. You know, nobody's like, I guess that you press it by like, says, like, I am the man doing or something. He says something very uh, disappointing. Yeah, I don't know. That's just, that's, that's just stupid. <laughs> For casting, obviously, uh, we had a large amount of returning cast. Yet Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, John Favreau, Don Cheadle, and Paul Bettany all returned to play the characters they played previously. And uh, Yinsen. Yeah, with a little uh, Sean, Sean cameo, uh, which I love. Uh, for the new characters, the role uh, of Killian went to Guy Pierce, um, And I wasn't sure whether uh, it was Maya Hansen who was originally going to be the lead villain. Or if they had to completely scrap, if if my Hansen is actually like a uh, a rewriting of of who she was originally intended to be. You mean the current form? Yes, because I I thought originally uh, Killian character was 
the the female version of whoever that was to, to be was going to coexist with Maya Hansen as well. Hmm. But I'm not sure how that all went down. Regardless, it ended up being a male character and it went to Guy Pierce, who was really good here, but I mean, what a lame reason to have to switch. That's unfortunate. For the role of Maya Hansen, uh, it was given to Rebecca Hall and uh, and uh, she's not quite um, vitriolic as uh, someone like Mickey Rourke is. However, she was definitely displeased. There's a quote from her which said, I signed on to do something that was a substantial role. She wasn't entirely the villain. There have been several f uh, phases of this, but I signed on to do something very different to what I ended up doing. Which again is kind of unfortunate when you see that kind of uh, meddling. To be honest, I wonder if the only reason she's in the movie is because they had already hired Rebecca Hall. It could be, because at the end of the day... <laughs> we'll talk about that later. I have a lot to say about that. For the character Harley Keener, uh, Ty Simpkins, who's kind of on a roll back then. He was in a lot of stuff. Insidious, this, Jurassic World. Well, So he actually signed on for a three-picture deal, and we've only just now seen him reprise his role at all with Endgame. Did that take a whole picture out of his deal? <laughs> I, I have no idea. For the, uh, the two people working for AIM, uh, the characters of Ellen Brandt and Eric Savin, uh, Stephanie Sozak, uh, Sostak played Brandt, and James Badge Dale played Eric Savin. Oh, yeah. And I, as far as like villainous henchmen go, I love these two a lot, and I'm going to get excited to talk about that later. Yeah, Black hired like a lot of like really interesting character actors to fill out these little tiny little side roles, and it really paid yeah. off. Like William Sadler. Like yeah, I was about to say, for, for some of these more minor roles, uh, William Sadler plays President Ellis. Uh, Miguel Fer uh, Ferrer plays Vice President Rodriguez. He just recently passed away, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, January 2017. Oh, that's sad. I didn't hear about that. For the uh, the role of the Tony Stark superfan Gary, comedian Adam Pally plays, and I love that character. <laughs> uh, as you already said, Sean Tube reprises his role as Jensen for a cameo. Uh, speaking of cameos, Stan Lee obviously has his here as a beauty pageant judge. Uh, actress Dale Dickey plays Mrs. Davis. Chinese actor Wang Zhugi pre, uh, plays a character named Dr. Wu. And there's actually a cut of this film for Chinese audiences, which kind of include this little subplot uh, featuring Wang, uh, as well as an appearance uh, by Fan Bingbing uh, as one of his assistants. Yeah, I just noticed for the first time that he appears at the party. Yeah. I never realized that before. Additionally, we've got Mark Ruffalo coming in for an uncredited cameo at the very end with the post-credits teaser, <laughs> uh, which I really liked. Which pissed a lot of people <laughs> off. That it, there was no significant post-credit. Like as they were already pissed off leaving the theater, that just made them more mad going out. Uh, I was probably upset that initial viewing with that, but now I laugh every time. So, film began in May of 2012 at the Screen, Ge Screen Gem Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina. Cinematographer John Toll served as the DP. Uh, he's like a really old hand. He's worked with guys like Mel Gibson. He shot Braveheart, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and Terrence Malick, as well as a bunch of other cool projects. Uh, they also filmed at the Wilmington International Airport, and the climactic battle was shot at the Port of Wilmington shipyards. Uh, for the scene where Iron Man rescues the falling crew of Air Force One, it was shot over Oak Island, North Carolina, with the Red Bull skydiving team performing as the crew. Rose Hill, North Carolina stood in for uh, Rose Hill, Tennessee, the town where Tony crashes and meets Harley and all that. Uh, while filming there, uh, Robert Downey Jr. broke his ankle and filming had to be stopped, uh, but it was only shut down for 10 days. I wonder if like the, la the final stage of that 
action sequence has like Tony lying down traps. I wonder if that was like done that way. Mm. So that because he had his uh, broken ankle or something. Could be. So they could film for a few days lying down or something. Uh, for the scenes in the Chinese cut that you mentioned, uh, filming was done in Beijing by a second unit. Uh, and Shane Black did not write or direct any of that. Like he really had no, he had really no involvement in, in that, that part of the process. It's kind of odd stuff to me. Yeah, because it wasn't like a full Chinese co-production, but they did help uh, help produce the film somewhat, and they were really trying to. This was, this was, if I'm not mistaken, the first big push to try and you know, like kind of like shape Hollywood blockbusters to appeal to the Chinese market. We've seen that happen in a lot of movies since then. But the- I was about to say it really affected films from here on for a bit. Uh, for the film's post-production, uh, like you mentioned. Uh, Downey Jr. had a leg injury, and because of that, they had to switch between uh, just stunt doubles as well as CGI doubles. And, and actually, the day of the incident, uh, all of the VFX supervisors pretty much ran into a room altogether uh, and decided, this is what we can shoot now, this is what we can't, this is where uh, CGI double is going to look convincing, this is where it won't. I wonder why, why, why would they use a CGI double and not just a stunt double and maybe a little bit of face replacement? Uh, I'm not sure. Part of me wonders if, you know, maybe it's during sequences where they're already going to have to use it and they just carry him through longer and have him do something they were originally not. I, I have no idea. But uh, but the CGI double was made by what a digital, though the film itself, uh, the effects themselves for the film were done by a multitude of different uh, effects studios, including Weta and ILM and a lot of the other big names. Once again, this Iron Man film is not scored by the previous film's composer, uh, John Debney, uh, nor the Iron Man before that, which was scored by Ramin Djawadi. Uh, this film was scored by Brian Tyler. Uh, and he says he was approached more for his uh, thematic scores uh, as opposed to his modern action scores. Uh, he, he scores the, uh, the Fast and the Furious films, which uh, are great. Feige actually wanted to use a theme that was more recognizable uh, and was able to be used for more dramatic kind of tones. Yeah, there was a push when Brian Tyler was brought on. He also did Thor The Dark World to essentially create all new themes for the characters. Um, A very unfortunate uh, occurrence, in my opinion. But yeah, that's what he was. That's what he was doing with this and and the other film. Thankfully, they didn't do that entirely with the event with the Age of Ultron. Well, we might talk about the negatives, but I'm also going to talk about the positives here. <laughs> uh, he said, actually, one of the, the biggest inspirations was uh, John Williams' work in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he's specifically the, the cue for the Well of Souls uh, influenced his extremist motif, uh, where he said he quoted he wanted it to have a feeling that was technology so advanced that nears magic maybe that's right i sent remember i sent you the yeah, extremist the, theme was like this is driving me crazy i know i know i've heard this before now it's time to listen to those two tracks back to back yeah the film premiered at a grand rex in paris uh on april 14th 2013 and then would go on wide release on may 3rd 2013 uh, so james uh, do you remember your first viewing of this film and what has your relationship with it been like over the last what six years uh, so yeah, I, like I said last episode, I ended up loving the Avengers way more than I thought I was going to. And so walking out of that movie, that's whenever I would have considered myself a real fan of the MCU, not just like this, this casual enjoyer. Uh, and so I went to Iron Man 3 super excited. And uh, like one of uh, the people who responded to our um, questions on Facebook, 
I didn't really know the comic stuff, so I loved it. Um, one of the things I was most excited to see was Ben Kingsley as the terrorist Mandarin because he just gave me chills in the trailers. Those and trailers. They're incredible. Those oh, are some of the every best. Every one of them is just stunning. And so that's like that was what I was really hyped for. And I remember when he walks out of the bathroom with his British <laughs> accent and the two girls in his bed, my stomach kind of dropped. I fell into like just a five second lapse of absolute confusion and panic. Like, what have they done? Marvel's jumped. Like, this is the most stupid thing I've ever seen. But the longer he was on screen, the more I completely fell in love with him. And because the shock was easily overcome by the quality of his new performance, <laughs> that's all that it had. That's all that they had to overcome for me because I had no pre-existing knowledge of the character. So yeah. once I was won over by the the tonal shift, I I took it all in stride, and I ended up walking away from the movie really loving it. Uh, I found out about all of the backlash afterward. Um, but it really didn't affect me. Uh, I think that I was at a point of, at that point in time of not really caring about um, how close you stick to source material. So I ended up walking away loving it. Yes, yeah, so I have a very distinct memories of my first viewing. Uh, after the Avengers, I became like a total MCU freak and I couldn't wait for the next movie. Um, I was also a big fan of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So I was very excited to see what uh, Shane Black would do. Uh, then the trailers came out, as I mentioned, and they were really, really awesome. I went to see it with my older brother, Christian, and we watched it through. And then when it was over, we just kind of looked at each other and said, let's see it again. And we just sat through the credits and uh, <laughs> sat through into the next showing and watched it through again. It's still the only film I've done it for. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. But even despite like having a lot of fun with you, know, it was a very funny movie, exciting action. Afterwards, there was a kind of a, an element of disappointment. You know, just expecting, you know, you, you you come out of the Avengers, like one of the greatest movies of all time, and you're on such a high, and you kind of, you hope that the next movie in the series can do that for you. That, that's a, It's a very unfair expectation, but, you know, I was kind of hoping that would happen. And as much as I enjoyed Iron Man 3, it was no Avengers. Um, So there, there was there was kind of an element of disappointment for a few years. Over, over the years, you know, I've, I've, I've always enjoyed it. I've never quite come to love it. Um, I, I really enjoy it for what it is. I think there are some plot issues. I think there's some tone issues that ne have never fully gelled with me. But overall, I think it's, it's a very fun movie. This, it's kind of always stayed like right in the middle of my uh, MCU rankings. So just moving to the, the, the main review, James, what is it about this film that, that connects with you so much? Shane Black. <laughs> uh, for me, sometimes... Like there are directors whose voice is just so inseparable from everything about the film that I almost consider them like co-leads of the film. Like it's kind of how I think about uh, like the Sherlock Holmes movies. Like Guy Ritchie might as well be just as a part of like the on-screen stuff as as Jude Law or, or Robert Downey Jr. again there. Uh, I just I love everything about his style about the tone he creates, um, about his wit. I think he's got, like, my favorite, just, if not my favorite, one of my favorite, just, like, completely packing the dialogue with this really sharp kind of cynical dry wit. And it's just, mm -hmm. 
amazing. It's, it's like Whedon if Whedon had a really nasty streak to him. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it, there's just this kind of like 90s buddy cop action movie style that he just, he brings to everything he's done, really. Uh, I hadn't seen anything of him before. So this is my introduction to him. And then whenever, it was actually whenever you came down the first time, we watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys. And it's like everything that I loved about Iron Man 3 is there. I'm like, okay, now I know when someone asks me, like, why do you like Iron Man 3? Like, what has just happened? I could just say, well, now that I've seen more of his films and I know that this is distinct to him, it's it's just everything Shane Black brings to it. There's a lot of 90s, you know, movie style in this film. Like just the, the structure and the the way it, the way the whole conflict plays out, you know, the, the villain is this kind of shadowy mysterious corporation slash government agency, fairly ambiguous motivations. You have the hero the hero, you know, they, they think they're safe, and then someone comes and shoots up their house, or shoots, you know, shoots. Like, there's always an ambush in these '90s movies where a lot of gunfire happens, and then you know, your, your hero's on the run, and you know, constantly being chased down. It's it, like it, there's a, a structure to the kind of '90s conspiracy movies that this film really uh, kind of adheres to. Yeah, and I think his third acts really feel that way throughout. Like where it's just the you know you versus all of these very like macho kind of henchman thing there's i think there's actually a lot of parallels between uh the ending of iron man 3 and kiss kiss bang bang and even the nice guys come to think there's like a lot of like vertical yeah ways he plays with action in that space it's it's actually yeah that that was something i really noticed when we were talking about for underrated that shane black has a he likes this kind of this action that has multi call like multi-layered action where there's this all these platforms and people on various levels of elevation and the camera's just kind of moving around and the, just like there's constant reversals and there's like a really there's a rhythm that he brings to it and a, a surprising amount of cohesion to these action sequences that take place. Like I just thinking of that that final set piece on the bridge in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is so just beautifully constructed. And he brings that here. It's just these and it's funny, like that even happens in the movies he didn't direct. Like uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, Last Boy Scout, those movies all have that kind of element to them. It's kind of funny. Like even though even the Predator has that uh, rather unfortunate film, but you know, it has that kind of that type of climax. It's something he really likes, and I think it works really well. And, and moving into the story, I think that that that's really the most interesting thing about this movie is th- this movie is a ver- is for the most part a very focused character piece for Tony Stark. It has absolutely nothing to add to the greater MCU you know, outside of the fact that Tony's a big part of the MCU. Like, there's there's no setup for future movies. There's no like elements of like past movies coming back to pay off. It, for, for all for all for all intents and purposes, aside from Tony's PTSD from the end of Avengers, it's this is like a, a completely self contained movie. I think that that's kind of uh, that's to its credit in that. It makes it feel like Thor, like Captain America. It makes it feel very unique within the MCU. There, there is an MCU formula, and this film doesn't really adhere to much of it. And you add that to you know Shane Black's tone, and you you end up with a, like a very unique movie in the MCU. Yeah, and that's something that like people who both love and hate this film will acknowledge is it feels very distinct within the the greater MCU. Here's a question: Why do you think people who don't care about the Mandarin twist still don't like this movie? 
like as we read with all those all those uh all that feedback there's a very wide array of opinions on this movie probably the most diverse opinions of on any mcu film why do you think that is like what is it that like people who aren't even mad about the mandarin why do, why do you think they still don't connect with this film i think something that i've seen probably the thing i see second to the mandarin twist complaints is it doesn't feel like an iron man movie uh he's without his suit He's downtrodden. It's an investigation thing, and there's not always a bunch of action and stuff in it. Everything you're saying sounds awesome. I, that's why I love it. That's <laughs> why I don't count myself among uh, myself among those people. That's what I see a lot. Is you know, at this point, we we weren't quite seeing the the whole Marvel formula. Like there wasn't that uh, conversation being had quite yet. But I think there was still an awareness that that the Phase One movies had similarities i guess and this really feels like a shane black film first and foremost and then an mcu film second yeah and like it's not even structured like a superhero movie this it's like very like almost like segmented or episodic where like there's these chunks of the film and it's very sprawling it's also a very dense movie like there's a lot of just stuff packed in here it just it doesn't feel like a superhero movie, you know, aside from the gigantic smashing climax. But even that, again, it was, as you said, feels more like a 90s film. So the story itself is taking Tony after the events of New York. He's, you know, he flew through a wormhole into some other part of the galaxy and saw, you know, alien ships rising out of the darkness. And it's kind of rattled him. And, you know, we opened this film up where he is hiding in his basement just building dozens of iron man suits because you know he has to protect his little world and that's the only way he knows how because the as he says you know the threat is imminent he's like completely paranoid i like that quote from where he's like uh he's talking about gods aliens other dimensions i'm just a man in a can kind of thing like and it, it's weird one of the complaints that i see is that uh they they weren't bold enough to really commit to the ptsd thing and it it felt like they relied too much on on just quips and humor, uh, but I think there is there is a difference. I think we actually talked about this on the underrated episode. Yeah, there is a difference between Tony's humor in this film and Tony's humor prior. It feels that difference might just be Shane Black, but I like to pretend it's intentional. <laughs> yeah, and well, you know, within the the context of the film. Yeah, I'd, uh, not talking about directors, I'm just going to say it's intentional. Because it, it feels way way more directed uh, and almost defensive. Uh, so, yeah, it, I don't know. To me, it's, it's exactly how this kind of personality type would react this way. Is He's already got this quick wit. He's already you know, quick to, to have some sort of comment and, and present himself as the smartest guy in the room. When you couple that with a guy who's kind of paranoid and defensive, you're going to get some of the lines that he has in this one. And I, I just love that idea of you, you're taking the man and he has to, like looking at where he was in Iron Man 1, 2 and the Avengers, like this is a person who has to like fully believe that he's right. He, he has his head, head on his shoulders. He knows what he believes about the world. And now all of a sudden, everything he thought he knew about the galaxy at large is has been you know flipped upside down, and he realizes that you know he's 
the the person the most important person in the world is now just you know one dude in a giant very scary universe that he can't understand and like on top of that and, and so he pours himself into his suits yeah you think about the the last iron man film you know where he was before the avengers and the the senate hearing he's there everybody else 10 15 years behind him he's at the top of the world and it was just one world he he was the one being sought after. And now all of a sudden, he's the guy who's having to keep up with people like Thor, with with aliens, with people who breathe fire. He goes... Hey, Captain America. Yeah. Like, so these are these are physical things. And, and he's constantly having to feel like... You know, Thor doesn't have to keep upgrading. He just exists that way. And so he constantly feels like he's having to keep up. And two films ago, everybody was having to try to catch up to him and... And I think the movie does a great job in reflecting that. And he's kind of lost his identity into these suits. Like the, just the image of him like panicking in the restaurant and just going and cowering in the Iron Man suit in the middle of the street. Like he's you know hiding from the world, like you know sending the, sending the suit up as a surrogate to talk to Pepper because he's freaking out in the basement. Like the, this he's kind of like becoming the suit and the, the image is so powerful. Um, after you know he you know he crashes in the, in Tennessee, uh, that beautiful image of him like lying in the snow and the light flickering. Like, but um, after that, where it's just him walking quietly through the snow, it's just really quiet. You hear the wind blowing; it's almost silent, and it's like literally like he's having to drag around the suit because he can't bear himself like bring himself to leave it. Like that is like you know dragging it around the weight of his failures and all that. Yeah. It's like a really powerful thematic image. That's what I thought. Like it never really occurred to me as being anything outside of just a really cool image, but the last couple of times watching it, I kinda you pick up on on the meaning of the imagery of you know, he's he's dragging his baggage literally. And that's another thing, like as funny as this is, and I'm gonna spend a lot of time probably on this episode just quoting this film, because I think <laughs> it's hilarious. Um but as funny as it is, it also just it feels so mature in its drama. Uh and it, it allows for those kind of moments of just lying quietly in the snow and dragging, uh, dragging it to the <laughs> to the the Indian in the or not the uh, dragging it to the still the poncho, the, yeah, stealing the poncho and everything. It's but you know it's the movie stops a lot. Or just, uh, yeah, the breathe. scene between Pepper and Tony we're talking about where he said when he says those lines like. It's just a lot of you know focused drama often, and that's what's so cra- uh, crazy. It's it kind of reminds me not in tone or anything, but but of Thor uh, in a way where it's like that movie is so content to just stop moving and breathe and live and establish this tone, uh, and I think Iron Man three does that as well. Uh, you don't really feel a lot of that constant forward momentum. It's just different pieces of different characters kind of sitting where they're at. And every now and then we'll stumble onto the next plot development, but uh, it's, it presents itself way more as just a character piece. Or just to, like to stop and have a conversation between a kid trying to figure out mortality. You know, those people, they left shadows because, you know, they went to heaven, but the killer he did like that scene isn't, you know, quote unquote necessary, but it's, it's a really quiet, poignant little moment. Yeah. And, on the subject of it, props to Shane Black for creating the the sidekick character little kid and not be obnoxious <laughs> to me. That's his specialty. Like, he's really good at that. And it happens like The Long Kiss Goodnight has it. Uh, the Last Boy Scout has it. Um, I don't know if any of the Lethal Weapons films have them, but like, uh, so then it you know, comes back in the nice guys. Like, he's, he's, he's really good at that. Yeah. 
And the, man, they're, they're often so annoying. And in this case, you know, there's it, he definitely serves a purpose, like a thematic purpose, but I also just, I like the way he just rounds out the cast. He's, he's a kid character that I'm actually really happy exists and I enjoy spending time with. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's a couple secrets to that. I think one is just be a jerk to the kid and we'll laugh at it. <laughs> the other is like, I think the kid, he comes in, you know, he has his part and he leaves. They don't have to bring the kid to the climax, you know? Yeah. Like, they're not just like, oh, look how awesome this kid it, It's not, you know, now this is pod racing. You don't have any of that what? happening in the climax. And um, I think you just, you also have to know, like, if you're going to have the kid verbally spar with the characters, you have to write it well. Uh, because, some, you know, a more mature actor, people, I'm sure that Robert Downey Jr. could take bad writing and make it sound incredible. And you wouldn't realize it's bad until you look at it on page. But for for kid actors, you've got to make sure that all the lines are great. And I think the the banter between Harley and Tony is pretty fantastic. I love the, the scene where he leaves him out in the snow. He's like, uh, I can tell you're cold. Want to know how? Because we're connected, and he just leaves them. It's it's great, you know. And that goes back to what you said: is just be a jerk to it. That whole that whole sequence is amazing. If if you do some other style, don't be a yell about it. <laughs> oh, the whole thing's like, yo, you're just gonna leave me, like my dad. Yep. <laughs> I love the little the little pause connected. there too. The yep. You're guilt tripping me, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, like it's so funny, yo. You know what I keep thinking? Where's my tuna sandwich? Or the you know, I'm not gonna quote the whole thing, you know. Dad's leave, <laughs> <laughs> which happens. Dad's yeah. leave. It's a weird mix of like being an absolute demeaning jerk to the kid, but also respecting him, talking to him like an adult, and also empowering him. Like, which is why the kid puts up with it. Yeah, exactly. Like his dismissiveness isn't on the basis of him being a kid all the time, and it's also <laughs> it's just dismissive, dismissiveness of the entire human exactly. Race. Uh, it's also interesting, like rewatching this now. You kind of see those early, early signs of like the, the the foreshadowing of of Tony as a as a father figure. He gets better at it, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, uh, but one of one of my uh, favorite moments is whenever uh, Hanson is there for, uh, for the first time, and she, uh, he's like, "You're gonna tell me that I've got a 12 year old kid out there?" She's like, "He's 13," and she just has that <laughs> spaz out look on his face. It is incredible. So I, I kind of want to talk about the whole villain thing with it because there's a lot of aspects here i mean first off you have the whole this is like the ultimate post 9-11 movie where or i would say post post 9-11 where terror has been commodified it's like literally a focus group sat down and thought you know what is the scariest thing to these people terrorism and they, they just cobbled together all these different aspects of exoticism that the West kind of is uncomfortable with and just put them into this walking cliche that's amazing and horrifying. And like even like just there's like a montage in the opening before we even uh, the, the first introduction of the Mandarin like, you know, then they had to go and turn on the TV. Mm. And we just, you kind of see like, it, it, this is all like subtext because you know the Mandarin doesn't happen for, the, for another hour and a half. But you just you see how the media, the media is essentially creating the terrorism because that's what terrorism is. It's not, you know, it's not about military victories. It's not like attacking strategic targets. It's literally about 
breaking, you know, destroying the sense of security that civilization provides. You know, we live in a we live in you know civilized culture, and the whole point of civilization is is to make us feel safe so that we can live normal lives. And what terrorism does is it, you know, just rips down that entire facade of, of civilization, and it just leaves you exposed and. People freak out, which is which is why which is why they keep doing it. it, it it's like it's just attacking us at, at, at their, it, essentially attacking us in our homes, and then the media, but you know, by spreading you know, playing the manifestos and you know, constantly covering, it, they increase that fear. You know, and even if you know there's a one terrorist attack in a nation of hundreds of millions of people, like the odds of like any one person being be, you know, being injured or in danger is obviously like minuscule, but yet by posting it on the news and all of that and broadcasting twenty four seven, the media itself is is like almost complicit in, you know, creating that the the very atmosphere of unease and unrest and terror that the terrorist is going after. I got, I mean, this, this is not this is meant as like an anti media um, you know, spiel or anything, but it's just it's just fascinating. The way that this film plays with that entire idea and notion. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people wish that there was no reveal, uh, just because of how amazing the performance was. And I'm not gonna lie; every now and then, I'm tempted to like want to peek into that alternate universe where he was just the Mandarin the whole time, and this is what it was always like because of how terrifying he is. But I really do like like that idea. Like when you rewatch it with the knowledge, you do see just how exaggerated all it is. Like. He really is an amalgamation of all the things we find scary and different. Uh, and so I I kind of like that not it doesn't make the the viewer or or the like the the citizens within the movie like gullible. It just it shows how easy we are to rat like to get rattled whenever whenever our fears are so explicit and, and commonly known. And on the subject, like my biggest defense of the reveal is for me, we get two Oscar worthy performances from Kingsley for the price of one. <laughs> Talking about like the, the pre reveal Mandarin, I absolutely love <laughs> everything about his performance. Uh, the, I, I used to quote anytime I had a secret or anything that nobody else knew and I was going to like reveal it, I'd always just be like, you'll never see it coming. <laughs> This this one monologue is you know, there's just one pre- one lesson left, President Ellis. So run away, hide, kiss your children goodbye, because nothing, not your army, not your red, white, blue attack dog can save you. It's like every time that happens, it's like chills. It's the thing, it's so, and the thing is like, when, watching this, knowing he's an actor, you can totally see how he's hemming it up and being a great you know an actor, <laughs> but. It doesn't take away anything from how po- the power of the performance. Yeah. And I, my favorite thing about it is just all of the little stories he tells, all of his little random asides during the videos, like the the whole the Braves or away uh, monologue. He has. That's why it's hollow, full of lies, and leaves a bad taste in yeah. the mouth. And so I, just every single time, and I love the introduction, the whole, uh, and then I had to turn, or and then I turned on the TV or, or whatever it is. The first time we see him. We feel his presence, and every time you see that red flag, I it's like the body tenses up. It just they make such a big deal about every time we get to see him again. And it, like you said, it's 
after knowing the reveal, you see and you're like, yeah, man, this is this is a pres- like a precise portrayal right now. Every every button he could push, every like it just it's it's played up to optimize the amount of terror it would inflict. It was funny, like I was watching an interview with um with Ben Kingsley. He said he took that one line, kind of like a, a, a it's kind of a quiet like line to himself where where he's when he has that like the crime scene later. He talks about he talks like a Baptist Baptist preacher. And so he took that line, his entire speech patterns. <laughs> He's like, we're we're, ch- we're trying to be like this old timey fundamentalist <laughs> preacher, someone who just had full command of the language and was just like, you know, giving a message from God essentially. And it's man, it's it's just I, I do not um, begrudge anybody who just wants that to be the villain. <sighs> that what is the accent? Like, it's it's an American. It's like it, it's like it sounds like a British. Like when British actors do American accents and they kind of overpronounce the words, it's like that, that taken to like a ten or whatever. But it feels so intentional in this case. And it's it's and it, it doesn't it doesn't feel cheesy. It's it's it, it just feels like alien and scary, which is what a terrorist should be. Uh, and then uh, the twist happens, and bloody hell, bloody hell. <laughs> He probably gives maybe the quotes that I use more than any from like the MC. The thing I say all the time, in fact, this has just become something that me and my siblings I live with use all the time is anytime we're asked why we did something or what's wrong, it's, it's complicated. Hey, it's complicated. <laughs> uh, one of the greatest deliveries ever in the whole, my name's Trevor. Ole, 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 ole. But I panicked, but then I handled it. Or on occasion, though, I wouldn't go in there for another 20 minutes. <laughs> so just everything about him, both performances, it's just like, this guy is giving the greatest possible performance based on the script right now. And, and like Ben Kingsley is like the picture of this dignified British character actor. <laughs> and just you play this like twitchy, you know, South London guy who's like been on drugs for a decade. Uh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I, I love like, his ultimate fate in the movie where he gets out and it's the paparazzi essentially. And he kind of like, he still gets to live his dream essentially. And you don't even feel bad about it. You're like, all right, whatever. I had some Give problems the with substances on. and they help you get off. <laughs> no, they gave me more. <laughs> oh, he's yeah. great. So I love everything about both sides of his characters. And that's my take on him. Yes. I agree with everything you said, but, and here comes the problem when you have an amazing villain and it's revealed to not actually be a villain at all, I think there's a very fair expectation of a equal or better villain yeah. to be revealed. And Aldrich Killing just isn't. Like, Guy Pierce is an, a, a capable of being incredibly sleazy, and I love it. But this character is nothing. There's nothing. There's no motivation. There's no political you know, political ideology. There's nothing philosophical. There's nothing there. He's just, I guess he was like, I guess he wants money or power, but we didn't even get that far into the conversation. He wants to control the war on terror. Great. That's a cool motivation. I think the idea of controlling supply and demand is a really cool concept. It's it's very, it's so unique. The whole notion of like, of, of like turning terror into, into merchandise and selling this terror to us. That's, I, and you know, still being, you know, on the, on the tail end of the war on terror, this thing that has captivated our nation for the last twenty years, 
that's, that's such a brilliant story idea. And it's, it's such a cool it's conclusion the to the whole, like we see the idea of war profiteering. We've seen that a lot before, but this is taken to such a cool play. Well, you know, cool in, in terms of like narrative purposes of, of the idea of, of not like fueling a war, but literally creating the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, creating the threat that, and you know, the, using the media and all of that, a threat that doesn't even exist, and yet you're, and you're controlling both sides of it. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. It reminds me a lot of, in addition to just like the the '90s style, uh, the '90s early 2000s style uh, that Abrams kind of brought to Mission Impossible Three, but even down to like the villain. Mm. but ultimately i think we're left with killian who i think is like down there with malekith as just oh i would not go that far boring like he's like he's kind of crazy guy pierce is obviously having fun but like there's nothing there and i think this is probably like a an artifact of changing you know you know taking the you know changing the villain from maya hansen who i'm assuming would have had the same motivations. We kind of, you know, you start out with the best intentions. She has like really great monologue to Pepper. Or maybe it's Tony, I forget to which. Until you start out, you're going to be a scientist and then the money gets involved in the think tanks and you just slowly, your soul is chipped away and you just become invested in the, the corporation, the machine. And, and Rebecca Hall is phenomenal in her two or three scenes. And ultimately, I, I really think either she should have stayed the villain or have been cut out of the movie. Like, cause as is in, in the movie, she really serves no function. She talks with pepper a bit, but like if, if we had to get guy Pierce to a situation to kidnap pepper, that could have happened. Well, we've in, already in, got in, two henchmen running around anyway. Yeah. And then, but she's not even a henchman. Like she's sympathetic. And then she has the moment where she stands up to killing and he shoots her and she is done and gone out of the movie. And like, she never has any real impact. I, I, I as I said, I really think, if it hadn't been for Rebecca Hall, like she wouldn't have even appeared in the movie. And I think the movie would have been stronger without her character or if her character was the villain or, and you could have had that, that whole idea of someone, you know, an idealist. Like if, if like her and Tony kind of started uh, like opposite ends and they kind of like passed each other that way, where he started out, he was just the, you know, the war profiteer, the person without a care in the world. And she was the idealist. And then now, now he is the hero and she slowly over the years, maybe losing a, a family member to terrorism or something has become, you know, lost her soul and became, you know, th- this kind of soulless corporate suit or something who just wants power. Like, and, and with Rebecca Hall's performance, I think that would have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's sort of like the first time I watched it, my mind isn't really analyzing anything like that. I just, this is a character who's in the movie, so they should be in the movie. But, but the more I grew in film and the more I rewatched it, the the pointlessness of her character sticks out even like i mean from the flashbacks the purpose she like showing up in the door bringing because in, in terms of actual practical use she created the the extremist thing which could have been done by killian or or her if she were the villain hey, tony you know we create our own demons yeah and he, he he is the one who created it anyway he's the one who solved the problem and exactly uh, and so, and then, yeah, she shows up as she gets Pepper out of there and then brings it. It's just, yeah, you you pull her out entirely and there's there's little 
function that needs to be filled in in her absence. Yeah, and if you took her out, you could have then taken her like a portion of her motivations and you know, lay them onto Killian, and you know have him play that out as well, or just uh, just something. So we're not, what we're left with is a useless character and a boring character to replace the iconic Mandarin. Like it's like a tra- Like how is it? We're talking six years later, and people are still obsessed with the trailers depiction of a character like there was there was something truly special there and i'm i'm glad that they you know they they had the thoughtfulness to try and twist that but again you know you have to if you're twisting you gotta twist into something better or at least equally interesting you don't you don't uh kill bane and give us talia (laughs) don't pull out the mandarin and well i guess give us as the movie claims the mandarin (laughs) and also it's I feel like, so this is the assumption a lot of people make, and I think Black confirmed it in quotes where he said, you present the Mandarin as is in the comics, and it's vaguely, if not more than vaguely offensive stereotypes. Maybe that was his early quotes. I've like listened to like four different interviews where he addresses this, and he's actually like pretty thoughtful and philosophical about it. You know, the, the original Mandarin was the yellow scare, you know, a- after, you know, Russia, you know, the Red Scare with Russia, and then now communism has spread to China, to Vietnam, Korea, and it's he's the the, the Chinese, the Asian communist. For the interviews I listened to, like the problem wasn't so much racism as much as just that's that whole notion isn't even isn't really relevant anymore. Like it's it's like like he he acknowledged that sure there's like racist parts of it, but the 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 problem was deeper as it's just. He does that. The the threat he represented doesn't exist anymore in that way. So he was, right. he was updating him to make it some, you know make it relevant for what we fear today. But it's just sort of like given that that like regardless of of Black's you know position on that, that's definitely a thought that a lot of people has. Like, well, you probably can't do it directly like that. <laughs> but it's just I find it weird that the solution was just to take a white dude and slap a dragon tattoo on him and call him the Mandarin. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly solving that problem. But, well, 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 what that means is, you know, it's me. It, it, I'm the the man behind the curtains, not as in I'm the crazy. Although, sure, I guess the whole tattoo. Like in that case, why even bother with the, ta- with the tattoo? Yeah, yeah well, I'm well, the crazy powerful wizard it, of Oz or whatever. You know, yeah. he should still be you know, a nerdy white dude. Yeah, I don't know. I just I found it like ironic that uh that in a way that. Whether it was Black's intention or not, in a way that of uh, avoiding those stereotypes, we just get a white dude and claim he's this historically Chinese <laughs> villain. But, oh well. Yeah, but I think the this film doesn't entirely fail under such a disappointing villain because ultimately the villain is Tony himself, you know, his own fears, his obsessions, and paranoia, and you know the climactic battle allows him to essentially. Even despite there not being any meaningful philosophical attack from the antagonist, he still gets to work through all his demons in that climactic battle. But just the way he uses the suits and destroying them all, and then in the end, you know, blowing them up and you know, renewing his commitment to Pepper and destroying the 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 literal manifestations of his paranoia and PTSD and fears and all of that, like literally blowing them up. It's so yeah, we, we get to have that emotional resolution despite, you know, a useless antagonist. Yeah. And I love that that, that idea though is so like 
completely present throughout the film. Um, from the earlier moment, like from the earliest moments of the film to the climax with the destruction of the suits, the, the real struggle, the inner struggle and the, the drama of the film isn't this thing we randomly pick up in the third act. This is, this has been what the film has been fighting the whole time. And honestly, even, even without, like, even if we just had the, the Mandarin as the real villain, I think we'd still see this as the primary conflict. Cause he's just, he's using the Mandarin as, as justification for his suits, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that, that idea would still be present regardless of the bait and switch. And isn't it brilliant that even though the fear is, was initially built off of aliens, it's the, you know, the threat, it, it's still, it's the same kind of fear. Like, the initial view was like the world is much bigger than I thought, and home is not safe, and that, that's what terrorists bring. You know, they come into you know to our society and disrupt it. So like it's like the exact same type of fear, and it just seamlessly transitions from aliens to terrorists. And you know, my home is literally destroyed, and I'm you know lost, wandering in the woods. And uh, one of the really cool pluses uh, of his inner demons is that we get the the physical representations of those inner demons the fact that we've got like all of these suits to play with the the scene of the iron man suit like waking them up in bed is actually it kind of freaked me out oh, in yeah. theater the first time uh the way it's shot and everything and so it's, it's cool to have like the physical embodiment of of all of his fears there and it, it helps twofold one because we notice their presence in scenes like that uh comedically kind of in scenes of him versus the mask as it flies towards him uh but as well as we strip him of it and we see that he's fully functional without living under the oppression of these uh these fears and stuff and so by being able to like use those as part of a as as tools to tell your story i think it's cool that we get to physically uh embody the fears and, and use that in a narrative yeah and uh like just the sequences where he is like where he doesn't have his suit or his partial suit. It's just great. Like we're like when he's in, in Rose Hill and he's like fighting handcuffed with kitchen supplies. Like we get to see like the, the, the Tony Stark we knew coming out again. I've dated a woman hotter than you. You walked into that. <laughs> Thought you got a cheap trick and a cheesy one liner. Sweetheart. That could be the name of my autobiography. <laughs> if like if that does not appear on a shelf in the background of a Spider-Man movie of the future, I'm going to be very disappointed. I will. I will get into like fan edits just to put one there myself. Yeah, but just I, there's something about the way Black does action. Like like the overall like his his directorial style is pretty simple. Like it's not nothing flashy. It's it's like just you know decent little shots. Most and, and most of it's just focused on acting and the, the you know the dialogue, the acting, the drama, which is what it should be focused on. But when he gets into action, I think he gets really creative. Like just the way he does hand to hand combat with like the way just like Tony like they'll grab each other, they'll just do all these weird moves, and like he'll like, flip over the counter and like trap her with the handcuffs. Like there's just a lot of constant creativity happening, and the camera work is really energetic and. It's, it's just a great clarity about the way he does action that I really enjoy. Clarity is the big thing to me. And he, he also plays with depth in really cool ways to me. Like when we're, we're standing on like the, the suspended thing with, uh, with Rhodey and the two people, we've got like the person who lands in the background and it's a really cool wide image. And then we've got someone right there in the foreground with their face covering the screen. And so he, like between the, the vertical element that he brings there and just 
pulling back and like telling stories in the background with this main thing that's really cool right like creating a cool composition in the front uh it's just it he creates a lot of really cool imagery uh and uses landscape in really cool ways to frame shots yeah it, it felt very similar to like the battle of the new york kind of style where just the camera's always moving and with cg assisting kind of just like building these really cool sequences like and just the use of the 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 coherence of the geography in that final fight which should not have been coherent like there are people everywhere you know just running on these walkways and you know we're going down roadies on you know swinging on steel cables and just this all this stuff all this motion and yet the, the we always feel like we know where we are we know where we're going there's it's just such a beautifully designed action sequence and it's, it's so creative like the just the way Tony is just constantly running like He's running down the walkway. An extremist guy jumps in. Right as they're about to clash, a suit comes and whips the guy away. Then a suit comes down, and right as is about to jump in the suit, an extremist guy jumps on and pulls the suit away. It's like it's just this constant lands on the kettle. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, or, or just when he's fight. There's like a, a forty second sequence where he's just fighting Killian, and it's so perfect because he like keeps like going through suits. I love the way he'll like fall, and the suits will just like open up. He can like fall, literally fall into the suit. And just, Achilles just like ripping them apart and like chopping the leg off, and like he's just staying one step ahead of them, like constantly trading out suits. It's just it's so clever and cool to watch. And and like what a what a cool opportunity to be able to just like dive into all of the various suits he's created in all the comics, and then create your own designs, and then use them to like facilitate the action scene that you're creating where you know, you've got the the guy with like the essentially jackhammers on his arms and he like pounds the ground and lifts him up. We see that was like an early prototype of the Hulkbuster. Every, like just all of these different kinds. One of my favorites is the one that splits apart where like every single piece of it comes undone and has its own little jet and it flies around. Like they all fly around and bash people and then they come back together in the same vein is that fight where he's in in the uh, in the mansion where he's fighting off all the goons with one glove and one boot the the jumping and spinning with the uzi is just yeah. incredible honestly i hate working here these guys are so <laughs> weird <laughs> i love it something else that i i really liked about it just uh going back to like tony and, and the character thing i love the way uh they explore his breakdowns with with his relationship with everybody else like this just need to be able to protect pepper that's kind of coming at the cost of of a happy relationship with pepper uh watching all of these different dynamics that have kind of been established and settled uh at this point and uh i love his uh his interactions with uh with happy and i, I love that we get to really see forehead of security <laughs> one of one of the greatest throwaway lines ever and when it came back in homecoming that was one of the greatest <laughs> moments of my life i absolutely love that uh, but what i love is that we really we, we always knew he cared like we talked a lot about how how much we love the importance they place on his relationship with pepper and, and how seriously they take pepper as a character um but i just love that we get a chance to see the extremes tony goes to like how much he genuinely does care for the people he he has in his life uh you know when happy is hospitalized and just like how that completely shakes tony <laughs> he's there you know telling him about badges and stuff and at the end we got happy looking making sure everybody has their badge but uh 
yeah, just watching watching these established dynamics and how they have changed based on the increased volatility of, of Tony's psyche at this point. <laughs> or happy, happy uh, to quit because he can't you know, stomach the shame of being Iron Man's bodyguard. <laughs> it's so good. It has ramifications, people. Yeah. And so and that's that's the thing. Like that to me that's what I'd point to when people say, you know, there's there's no real consequence and it's just kind of here and and gone it's here to say it's here but not really to be explored but i don't know i disagree with that and and the way they portray panic attacks i'm not gonna lie whenever i first started college i i actually had panic attacks and so whenever uh whenever he has that and it's just he goes into full full bore sprints until he just collapses I was like, oh, wow, that is very similar. Yeah, I, I had never had them before when I watched the film first, but like, I've, you know, I've had one or two and they, they do feel like frighteningly uh, realistic. Yeah, and so just watching this guy completely break down for these few second long moments before he could collect himself again. Uh, and I, I, there's like, there's real drama to it, I, especially whenever he's out in the in the town with, with Harley and he just... He's like, oh, you, you had to mention it. And he just runs out until he falls. You know, like, we've got more funny lines in that scene. but it, I didn't even mention New York. <laughs> hey, oh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you're saying it again? But yeah, like, this. these are some examples where I think the humor kind of is more revealing of the real drama there than undermining it. And I think I think it's become a very shallow way to to critique films if we just see humor like the very presence of it as something that undermines drama. But, but based on who Tony is, the way he handles these things, I think it really serves to to support the drama and reveal where it's coming from. Oh, humor is a great tool for drama. I mean, that, that, that's, 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 humor is a defense mechanism. And if you have to defend yourself, like th- that right there, voila, drama. Yeah. There's something okay. I have a larger theory about this film, and not necessarily a theory, but I, I think one of the issues not with this film, but not truly with the film, is that if like Tony is kind of solved in this movie, like he kind of figures out all his problems, and he ends the film in a really good place. You know, he's blowing his suits up. I am Iron Man, and then we go to Age of Ultron, and he's. He has all the exact same fears. He's terrified of the aliens after New York. And now he has to, you know, he's, he's still building suits. He has to build build the suit suit of armor around the world. Which, and that is not this film's fault. Shane Black was given a film and he'll, he dealt with the consequences of New York. He wasn't given the game plan for, you know, five years later, whatever next movie's coming out. And so that, uh, I can't say that's a fault with this film, but I think it's one of the, the few areas in the MCU where the continuity feels a little weird. Where essentially for Avengers Age of Ultron and then Civil War after that, and Civil War after that, we had to recreate the exact same fear that Tony solved in this movie. You know, that the the need to control everything and you know having to build a suit. And I think this film would have been better if it came after Civil War. The story, the story told in this film, said it between because, Civil War and Homecoming. Yes, because the, the 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 fear that drives Age of Ultron is that's Tony Stark to a T. But it, it was the fear that was solved here. So, like, if you did that, imagine like you you have the Avengers, 
then going directly into Age of Ultron, where it's you know dealing directly with the fear of another invasion building Ultron. Perfect. And then you have Age of Ultron, and that you know that failure leading into his you know hyper protectiveness in Civil War, and that and then that whole fiasco where he destroys the Avengers and he's left alone. Imagine ending Civil War in that you know he's the worst place he's ever been. And then going to this one where he's just a wreck hiding in the basement and you're just building suits. You know, Tony Stark has failed. You know, he tried to save the world with, with Ultron. He tried to save the world through diplomacy. All of that's failed and you know, crumbled in his face. The Avengers are gone. And he's just like tink, tinkering like a madman in the basement. And then have him have that revelation of, you know, Iron Man is me. And, you know, I am Iron Man. It's not the suits. It's not any of that. I, you know, I'm the mechanic, you know, fight, finding himself again and finally once and for all conquering that fear and then going to homecoming. When you look at homecoming, he and, 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 and the beginning of infinity where he and, and, and game as well, where he's the healthiest we've ever seen him. And like, like having like going from the lowest point after civil war, going to iron man three, having his, you know, his whole personal revelation, then going to homecoming where, you know, he's kind of found himself again and he's, you know, taking on, you know, mentoring, Peter and he's he's like healthy and after that it's just kind of it's all kind of uphill for his character and so I just feel like that would have been like a perfect arc through the MCU if it happened that way and you know that's all it's all hindsight and whatnot but yeah what do you think I think it makes sense you know I I you probably have to create a, a new story because they obviously would and that that also explains like the whole question people say for this movie is oh, why did they call the Avengers well because Tony just destroyed the Avengers oh that's true. Yeah, and then you have even uh, like the additional like need for the suits is he's essentially creating stand-ins for for the team he was once a part of. Like yeah. this is his new Avengers. Just a few extra things. Like I think we've covered like a lot of what this film is about and and a lot of its strengths. But I another thing that I just I love about this movie is that all of the pieces that fit in between are just so well used. And so I, I kind of want to talk about the uh, the henchmen because they feel, they encapsulate a lot of what I love about Black, which is just very stylized, very distinct. Like have recognizable looking people like James Badgedale and uh, Stephanie Sostak. And you just give them these little roles that are purely function, but you make them so unique and recognizable that just the way he jiggles the the badge at John Favreau. I love that. I love those little moments, or the what just his body language when he's holding Ty Simpkins, <laughs> like this confident, like I'm in control kind of thing, and just the constant chewing gum and everything. Wearing, wearing and, the captain's hat after he takes over the Air Force One. Yeah, he's just he's so great, and I I love a uh, so stacked too. Like her scene there in that small town. The way she like just whips whips around and pulls out the badge, uh, or you know whenever she's like the the fire explodes and she's kind of stands up and cracks her neck real quick and smiles and continues to walk. They're just rips out a guy's heart and grins. Yeah, like they're just so. To me, they are very visually striking and they have really fun, kind of villainous personalities. And so, th- this goes back kind of to what I was saying with. With the with downtime that Black allows, it's just all of these pieces. Whether we're just we're we're purely in these functional scenes of kidnapping this person, we you know we fight here, or we're just going to sit down and have you know 
Tony sit on a couch with a little kid in a busted Iron Man suit. Every scene just feels like it's oozing with Black's personality that he's placing on all of these other characters. And in a way that still feels like it's not contradicting the universe. You know, I, I think he finds a way to voice his sense of humor through an already established Tony Stark sense of humor and and blend it really well. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the fact that him and Robert Downey Jr. are so good together, like his his style of you know, snappy dialogue is perfect for Robert Downey Jr. So it's just, it, it feels seamless. Mm. <laughs> so does extremists drive people crazy? Is that what we're supposed to get at? Like, because Killian is not quite right. Like there's <laughs> there's something going on with that guy. So he breathes fire, he comes and like, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> it's, lines like that are why I can never put him down on Malekith level. Like, the character's terrible, but he's having fun. And like, uh, Savin and the, uh, a guy, you, <laughs> I don't know her name either, the, the, the other girl in Rose, Hill, in Rose Hill, like, they're both obviously like total crazy psychopaths. And then, like, all the people at the climax are like totally willing to jump onto Iron Man suits and exp- blow up. Like, it, it just kind of like leaps in logic where it just it doesn't feel natural or human or like why did they leave Rhodey just alive and free <laughs> after they knocked him out like he just like we, we see him get knocked out and next next scene he's literally like running and tackling guys like what what happened in between that I don't um, worry about it just, like, there's, there's little things like that throughout the film that kind of bug me yeah it's not huge but like kind of nitpick things that add up eventually uh, the the last real thing that I <laughs> that I really love about this movie every time I get back to it is the Iron Patriot. Uh, one, it's it's a cool design, um, and it's funny seeing him salute because I just think of Iron Man Two. He's like, I can make salute, and now we see him <laughs> out there with the president. Um, but I love the the continuation of of Rhodey and Tony's friendship. It's not like really explored a lot here, but uh. I mean, it makes me wish that Black could return and make a prequel movie with uh, with Tony here and with uh, with Rhodey and just go full Shane Black buddy comedy. Because whenever Tony is stripped of his suit and he meets up with Rhodey and they're going into the third act like that, I I, I love their back and forth. One, one of the lines that gets me the most is whenever he stands up to peek and he gets back down, he's like, anything? Like, no, too fast. It's just such a funny moment. <laughs> is you get up? Yeah. Yep. And so, like, the way they interact with each other, the design of the Iron Patriot and everything, and, like, when he goes and he, he thinks he's freed everybody. Uh, and, of course, the... <laughs> You're free if uh, you worked yeah. before. Uh, the, you know, what <laughs> is it? <laughs> Getting a call from Tony <laughs> in the middle of a raid. War Machine rocks all caps to the Yeah, nuts. he does. <laughs> Don't call it hacking. This isn't the 80s. It's Iron Patriot now. It's so much cooler. No, it's not. Yeah. And so that's, that's the thing. Like, again, I'm, I'm just going back to these these elements that Black brings to it. So pretty much my entire summary for, for this movie and everything about it is just, I like what Shane Black did here, and I like what Shane Black did here, and here, and here. You hear that? We're done here. <laughs> Actually, I know that I said that that was the last thing, but the real last thing. We've learned not to trust you by this point, James. That's That's true. We need a little sound to go off to cue the audience in to know that, okay, in retrospect, we know that this is the last thing. <laughs> we'll have like five of them. <laughs> the, uh, the airplane sequence is really fantastic. There's something about the way he shoots it. 
that feels so real and like thrill like the best word i could use to describe that scene is just thrilling like and the way we explain the motivation so clearly and the logic of it shock them they grab on <laughs> and the movie itself using the the analogy you know ever play monkey in, uh monkey in the barrel like it's the the speed at which we're going the countdown uh before we hit the ground everything it's just in the the ex the shot of like the explosion behind it's just it's so cinematic like it's mm -hmm. thrilling action cinema at its finest for that sequence and a great mix of cgi and live action like they said that that was the biggest skydiving stunt for a film i guess i'm assuming probably up until a uh, fallout all right, so before we do a star rating, let's talk about the score real quick. Um, this is obviously you know brought, the first time Brian Tyler was in the MCU, and he he brought an entirely new sound for Iron Man, um, which I like and hate. I still am absolutely pissed that the 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 electric guitars didn't come back because that for me for me and Jawadi just riffing on electric guitar. As the you know the the the, the uh, suit up montages happen, that's that's Iron Man, and I think Brian Tyler's theme is actually really good. But come on, could you have still at least played with the same sound? Like I understand that 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 the Iron Man theme as it was was only you know was really only able to be played at full blast on an electric guitar. It kind of lost all meaning when it wasn't. But still, like. It was su it was su it's such an iconic sound, and the the theme we get is is definitely good, but it's nowhere near as distinctive as the sound uh, you know Jawadi brought to that first film. Uh, I kind of disagree. I wouldn't have minded if we got the. I love the like the slow the dun 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 dun, dun that kind of like building suits and stuff. But as for like the main theme, I still sometimes have to like struggle to recall what the Iron Man 1 theme is. I mean, because it's not so much a theme as a sound. Well, yeah. And so, like, if they wanted to use that kind of as a general sound for this at times, I guess I'd be more okay. But as far as... I, I wish they did because I think Brian Tyler's brass is super... Whenever he's not playing the, the, the new Iron Man theme, which I love, is super forgettable. Like, the entire last half of the soundtrack is dull. Yeah. Because it's it's all just like really just the the brass the same brass sounds you've heard in every single action film you know, since the dawn of time. Yeah, he needs he needed to get better in in scoring like excitement and action. But I actually really like which is weird because the first half has has some really cool action beats. Actually, the the the, the track attack on ten eighty eight zero uh, Malibu Point that's a really good action track. But like as the film goes on for something, the action becomes less interesting. But I, one thing I do like, though, I like a lot of the the mu the softer music, the music in downtime. Uh, I think it ends up sounding distinctive. Like when in the flashback when he's with Maya Hansen and we you know we see it grow back and we see they're just you know talking with each other and and Killian's on the roof and just her conversation with um, with Pepper and the cars. So there are moments where it's quiet and it's. I just I, there's something about that sound that I like a lot. There's the, the, one of the quiet ones is the, the theme, uh, the isolation yeah. track, which is what was plays while he's you know pulling the suit. The snow is really like ethereal and kind of reflective, nice piano stuff. And and uh, but speaking of that main Iron Man theme, it is it is pretty cool. 
um, like really heavy on brass percussion. It, it's it is you know really big and bold. It, it does sound kind of retro, that I in a way that I like. Um, and it, it's also very versatile. Like he he uses it all throughout the uh, the the score in a, a lot of different tones and styles. Like he even turns it into a Christmas. <laughs> like he in the other the track on New Beginnings. You have the Iron Man theme really like Christmasified, which is really fun. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, just that that main theme. It's oof, man. I might call it my favorite hero theme in the MCU. It's it's got nothing on Sons of Odin. I think I like it better. I just it's to me what I love about it is it's it's not the rock and roll side of Tony, the showman side of Tony. When all when all the suits show up at the end. And the theme comes in. He he goes out like throws his arms up in the air. Whatever he says, you know, it's Christmas. Take him to church, and it <laughs> crescendos with that. Like, I it then he becomes his father that I saw presenting like the floating car in Captain America. Like this guy who's gonna be out there and charmingly sell you everything, and he's awesome. He he is such a a showboater kind of person, and the music reflects that so well. Yeah, but my my favorite track is probably "Can You Dig It." You know, the, the 80s, the, the thing that plays of like the, the 80s or 70s, you know, cheesy end credit sequence. And, and, As I say, it's very 70s psychedelic. Yeah, it's, it's super jazzy. It's so much fun. That is my personal favorite track of the entire MCU. That's, <laughs> I listen to it. Actually, I come to think of it, I listen to that track a lot. And everything about it, it's the most upbeat, fun to drive to, fun to listen to. I can hum any one singular point of it because it, it has different sounds, different instruments, but it's all just like this really cool, fun, forward-moving kind of track. It's one of my favorite like film tracks. It's just such a good time. And finally, let's move into our star rating and ranking. Uh, what do you give this out of five stars, James? And uh, how do you rank it with the rest of the MCU? Uh, I'm just going with my heart on this one. So I were out of five. I know a lot of people are going to say three out of five is probably the most, or 3.5 or whatever, most reasonable. I really, really love this movie. There was an extended period of time where it was my favorite of the Iron Man trilogy. Uh, on rewatch, I know that Iron Man 1 is the best of the trilogy. Oh, did that kill you? Do what? To say did it? Did that kill you to say? It did, kind of. But the reason it didn't is because I will still say it might be my favorite. If not my favorite, it might be the most fun to watch for me. And so I give it four out of five. But my my ranking of the series is uh, number one, The Avengers. Number two, Iron Man. Number three, Iron Man 3. Number four, Thor. Number five, or, no, sorry, number four, Captain America, the first Avenger. Number four, Thor. Number five, Iron Man 2. And number six, the Incredible Hulk. Um, so I give it three and a half stars out of five. It's a very fun movie to watch, and you know it does some really great things dramatically. Also, I think it has some serious structural issues and and uh, and like just things that could have been you know fixed and made the film a lot stronger as a whole. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an enjoyable time. As far as my ranking for the entire MCU, at number one, of course, is the Avengers. Then you have Iron Man, Thor. Iron Man 3, The Incredible Hulk, The First Avenger, and then Iron Man 2. It's crazy that we've already got a full trilogy in the MCU. Oh, yeah. That is weird. Six movies in. Seven movies in. Wow. All right. So as far as the uh, box office, uh, it uh, earned $409 million domestically and $805 in the 
foreign markets for a worldwide total of $1 billion and $214 million on its $200 million budget. And you know, it, it made $121 million just in China. <laughs> that, that one minute of screen time definitely paid off. It's the highest grossing Iron Man film. It doubled what Iron Man 2 did worldwide. Uh, you know, still probably riding off the high the MCU high after the Avengers. Uh, it's currently the seventh highest grossing M- MCU film domestically and the sixth highest grossing worldwide. And it was the only MCU film up until Black Panther to earn a billion, which I did. I thought that's crazy. That is crazy. It took that long. And now they're all making a billion. <laughs> Except Ant-Man. Aww. As far as the critical and audience reception, uh, it got it was interesting. Like it got a seventy-eight on Rotten Tomatoes and a sixty-two on Metacritic, and has comparable audience scores. It was just funny. Like I think if if this movie came out today and had the same reaction, you know, like hateful reaction to the Mandarin reveal, I'm pretty sure like you would have had the troll groups, you know, going after it, like they did for the Last Jedi and Solo and Captain Marvel and all that. Like, like they, they've kind of figured out how to mobilize themselves today. I guess in a way they they hadn't at the time. As far as like what the critics said, like they they praised Black Script. Uh, RDJ obviously got a lot of cr- credit for his performance. Um, there's also a lot of kind of kind of an, a note of being underwhelmed. Uh, I think this is similar to what I felt. Like this is like oh, this is the follow up to Avengers. Yeah, it was pretty good, I guess. Um, it didn't re- it didn't seem to really blow anybody away. Um, and then you obviously had that contingent of fans, which I think which I think is still pretty small because you know not many people read comics and then you know how many how how much of the people who actually read comics have an iron man comics and are like fans of the manders like you're not you're not talking about a huge group but they were they were definitely very loud at the time but like as far as i know with just the general audiences people liked it but i think similar with critics there's there does seem to be something fairly tepid about the response like like looking back at all the reactions we read you know from our listeners like you see the people strongly dislike it or they kind of like it. There aren't a lot of people who really love it. As far as its legacy, it's really, I, I actually feel like I've seen a sizable number in all three camps. Like I, I see it at the bottom of people's lists more often than I would like because it should never ever be on the bottom of your MCU list. Um, and then I see, I see a lot of people who are like, like we, I think we had like, three comments like that were like it was good i didn't like some of the humor i didn't like the manager twist but it was fine i had fun like that but there is definitely and maybe it's because i'm one of them and i intentionally seek them out but there is a, <laughs> a group of people who do really love this and i think i think this is kind of the natural reaction to a film that is so specific to a particular voice where mm-hmm. if you're on board with that voice you are going to love it and if you're not on board with that voice you're probably not um, similar to Thor, I feel like you have that, that small loyal group who likes it, and everyone's like, whatever. Yeah. And so um, maybe it is just in my mission to to find others like us. It was an idea, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> to bring together a group of remarkable fans. Uh, and I count myself uh, among them. But yeah, there's there's definitely people who have come around on this film. People who who uh, are really big fans of Shane Black. Uh, Surprise! There's a large number of people who who actually are not really MCU fans, but who really do love this. Uh, Eric Skorzynski, who we've had on before, uh, is... I don't, do you want Eric Skorzynski on your side? Oh, man, it depends. And in this case, <laughs> I'll take him. Uh, I'll happily take him here. But yeah, there, there's definitely people who... Th- this movie does a lot for people who criticize the formula. 
because of how unformulaic it is and how specific to black it is. <laughs> it's very formulaic, just the formula that well, died 20 years there you ago. Go. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a the legacy of this film is really weird. <laughs> That's all you can really say. There's a lot of people who still hate it. There's a maybe not as many, but there's a group of us who really love it. And there's a lot of people who are just like, well, it happened, and I had fun while I watched it, and this and that. But one of these days, people will appreciate this movie. Not having a significant impact on the MCU at large, I think, has kind of hurt its legacy because it's one of those films like Incredible Hulk where you can just kind of almost forget it exists. Like when you're thinking about the whole journey of the MCU. Yeah. Especially since like they retconned, as you said, they retconned Tony's character yeah. growth in the next film. I had fun just being able to talk about how much I love this. It's kind of like an inside joke in a, in a lot of our chats that uh, I am one of the, uh, the biggest supporters of this film. So maybe I'm we'll... just glad you've come to your senses to realize that Iron Man is, is actually better. Oh, it's better, but I... I might like the highs of Iron Man 3 better than the highs of Iron Man 1. All right. So that was our review of Iron Man 3. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'll ask you to please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave us a rating and review. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're there as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me at a letterbox. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can follow us over on Facebook uh, at the group, uh, The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Uh, we are a discussion group on Star Wars that we try to frame everything in a positive light. We're currently going through a Star Wars marathon, including the shows that we've just concluded, The Clone Wars, uh, and we're leading yeah, into... And by, by, by the time this episode goes up, we'll be starting the... Uh about starting rebels oh there you yeah so uh if you want to talk about rebels definitely join us over at that time uh, yeah we're excitedly leading into rise of skywalker so if you're looking for a group to just voice uh voice your positivity and excitement about the state of star wars with especially with everything coming this year uh in addition to rise of skywalker uh definitely join us over there and i'm also on letterboxd you can find me there as gabriel green uh you can follow me on twitter as at Gabe A. Green, and you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week, uh, we're talking about Thor the Dark World. Yay and joy and jubilations, I guess, or something. Revels, the, as Thor would say. The thing that I like about the MC is even the worst ones aren't overtly bad. So despite <laughs> this not being among the better ones, I am still excited. At least it has Loki. There'll be Loki, Loki quotes aplenty. That'll keep yes. us going. <laughs> In my opinion, the best like outing for Loki of the whole series. So, All right. So until next week, we will see you in Asgard. You can take away my house, all my tricks and toys. One thing you can't take away, I am Iron Man. Yeah.